Father, I thank you for the freedom that we have in you. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Lord God, I pray that there will be freedom experienced here, if not already, during the ministry of the Word, during, during the time after of, of just fellowship, Lord God, that truly freedom would be sensed and felt here in the lives of every individual. I thank you in advance, in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Good morning. Wonderful time of worship that we were able to have. My heart for each and every one of you is for you to experience God in your life in some way, shape, or form. Now, I'm not here to define what that is. And in fact, that's a problem sometimes for, for many Christians and many leaders within Christianity is that they want to define what your experience is. They want to say, well, this is what God is like. And they put it in like this little box. You know, it's a tingly feeling or, or it's this kind of feeling or it's this emotion or, or, or it causes you to want to do this or do that. I don't want to put God in a box because he's bigger than any box that we could find. But here's my prayer for each and every one of you, that you experience God as God intends for you to experience him. And I love this, that God wants to meet us each at our point of need. And that means we're all in different places. You know, both in our, in our Christian walk, in our spiritual journey, uh, in our jobs, in our relationships, and in whether we go to school or not. You know, we're all over the map, so to speak. And so our experience, what, what God has for us, should be unique and different than someone else's. And so that's my prayer for you today, is that you experience God in the uniqueness of your relationship with Him. Now I'm going to warn you, though it's unique, it may still be uncomfortable. I'm just going to be honest about it. Because just like we can't put God in a box, God doesn't want you to be in a box either. He wants to break open the box and, and give you an experience that's maybe a little beyond what you've experienced in the past. That's His nature. He wants you to grow in your relationship with Him. So therefore, we go from what? Faith to faith, from glory to glory, from experience to experience with Him. Amen? That, that's how it works. And so if you are coming here, maybe you're a guest here, I, maybe I'm speaking to you right now, and you want a church that just makes you feel good, that you're just comfortable in your little church seat and everything, you're probably in the wrong place. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just giving you a heads up about that. But if you want to be encouraged, if you want to be pushed on beyond where you are now, then this is the place to be. And there's lots of places like that. I'm not saying we've got the corner on the market. But the thing is, I want you to know that at times, yes, if you're uncomfortable, I want to help you to become comfortable. But if you're comfortable, I want you to get uncomfortable. And that's just the way our walk with the Lord is. So I encourage you today to always be praying. Just as we're going through this message, asking the Lord, Lord, what are you saying to me? You see, all that I'm going to say, whatever thousands of words it's going to be, it's not for one individual, but there's a few words for this person, a few words for that person. That's the Spirit of God. And so your experience, in fact, if I did an exit interview with all of you, I hope that each one of you would tell me something different than someone else, because that's God speaking to you, not me, amen? So with that in mind, I want to begin with just a, a base scripture, a foundation of, of why, in a sense, we're going in this direction of experiencing God. And David says something that's incredible in Psalms 84, 
verse 10. And let me just read it to you, and I'll put it up as well. He says this, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. We have a song that we sing. That, that Yeah, it's an awesome song. It's an old song, but it's a good, an oldie but a goodie. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. So here's King David. He'd experienced a lot of things in life. He had all the stuff, all the toys of the world. You know what I'm saying? And yet, here's what he says. I'd rather be one day in your courts than a thousand days in the tents of a wicked in, in the tents of the wicked. What is he saying? Well, he's not even saying that he wants to be right there, right face to face with God. He just wants to be in the same dwelling area. You know, in fact, gatekeeper, that was like the lowest of the lowest job, right? You're there just at the gate, people are coming and going. And, and literally, he's at the lowest job of, of being a servant. And he says, that's a better job. That's a better place to be than dwelling in a tent. In other words, a big house, big fancy place with wicked people. In other words, enjoying the pleasures of this world. It's interesting to note that the court refers to, you know, the temple, the presence of God being a permanent place. But where do the wicked live? In a tent. That's temporary, isn't it? And that speaks of the temporariness of the life that we live here, right? All the pleasures of this world come and go. You know, I remember one day I, I, I got a newer car. and I've never bought a new car. I got a newer car. And I was driving the car down the road and I was thinking, man, this feels pretty good. You know, I, I'm in my new, newer car, you know. It still smelled new. And I'm like, oh, yeah, just that smell of whatever. And <laughs> probably not healthy for you, right? But, but still, it's that new car kind of smell. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, son, this isn't even yours. I'm like, yes, it is. You know, I bought it. You know, he said, have a look in the glove box. So, so when I got home, I opened the glove box, and, and I look at the title, and on it, it said the lien holder's name, and it was the bank. And he said, you don't own this. The bank does. And just so you know, the bank doesn't own it, but I own it. And I realized at that very point in time that all the things that we have it's just temporary. We're just stewards of it. We're just tools to live our lives. But the thing is, that's hard sometimes to grab hold of. Here I am saying that to you, but now you have to make it your own. In other words, you've got to come to that revelation of that yourself. So the next time you're shopping for the shiny new whatever, it's like, okay, do I need this? Do I want this? You know, what, you know, Jesus, what are you saying? And to ask those honest questions, because when we're putting stuff before Jesus then we're actually missing what God has for us. And that's really what I want to talk to you about today is revival. You know, I believe that God wants to provide a revival in our lives, I believe, on a daily basis. You know, I know that there are, you know, bigger, quote, revivals where there's moves of God in maybe an area or a church or even a whole country or, or in, a, in a group of countries. And I'm all for that, and I'm not against that in any way. I believe that happens. But I want to say this to you before we go any further, is that I believe God wants each one of us to experience a personal revival on a daily basis with him. It should not be an extraordinary moment in our lives where, oh man, I had an experience with God. And then like 10 years goes by, and then you have another one, and oh wow, that was great. Listen to me. That, I believe, is not, it should be flipped on the other side. It should be like, you know, one day in 10 years. Man, I just didn't sense God that one day in 10 years. But every other day I did. In other words, it should be flipped around on it. We need to flip the page on that and realize that God wants to encounter with us every single day. The question is, are we answering the door? And I wonder whether the business of life, the craziness that goes on, it's so easy now. You know, you go back even 30, 40 years ago, you know, people would reach in the evenings for their Bible to read. So what do we reach for now so often? You know, our tablet, 
or our smartphone, right? Because it's just so easy, and, and it does stuff in our brain. There's actually been scientific studies done that when you look at stuff online, it, it endorphins and this and that all happens, and it like, gives you this sense of pleasure. Here's the thing. We used to get that same sense allowing God's Word to permeate our soul. But now an hour goes by, and, and we put that thing down. We're like, what did I just do for an hour? You can't even remember. You know what I'm saying? You, you just have no idea. Yet that time has been swept away, and that's one of the only things that we have to offer to our Lord is our time. Amen? That's, that's our personal gift that we can give back to Him. So I want to take a few moments this morning and talk about a king. He was known as the boy king in the Bible because he actually became king when he was eight years old. So let's dig into this, and, and we're, we're speaking, again, the context of all this is revival. So we're going to actually look at a revival that happened there and, and hopefully extrapolate some things that we can apply to our lives today. So 2 Kings chapter 22, the same account is found in Chronicles as well. You know, Kings and Chronicles are similar in a lot of ways. I'm not going to get into the whys of that, but they just are. And so 2 Kings 22, I'm reading from the NIV version says, then Shephan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shephan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Wow. All right. Now you're like, that's a bizarre scripture, Pastor Carl, to be reading. What the heck's all this mean? Okay, I got to give you some backstory, right? Okay, so let me give you some backstory. We have to go back 300 years in time, all right? King David was the second king over all of Israel, and so what he, he wanted to do was to build a temple for the Lord, but the Lord said, look, you've been a man of war, you can't do it, and so your son will do it. So David prepared all the materials, and Solomon ends up building this amazing temple, and it's just amazing. You know, gold covered. It, it was like the top of the line, the best of the best in the known world of that day. Just an amazing place. And it was set up to worship God. And he had, you know, the altars there, all the different things that were there. It was actually a mirrored image of the tabernacle for those that have studied that at all. So it's pretty cool, all right? So they got this thing. So that's 300 years before. Now, what Solomon did, he was one of the wisest people in a lot of ways, but he's also one of the dumbest people as well, all right? Just going to be honest, all right? Uh, because what he did, instead of remaining pure in his relationship with the Lord, he began to worship some other gods. And here's how it happened. To make covenant agreement, in other words, to not have war with the nations around him, he ended up marrying the daughters of kings from the nations around him. And literally, he had like hundreds and hundreds of wives and girlfriends, hundreds and hundreds of them, all right, no, yeah, like, yeah, you know, for my life, I think about it, one wife is more than enough to care for, you know what I'm saying, I'm not, and I don't mean that in a negative, derogatory term, it's just for me to keep her happy, one wife, that's, yeah, I can't imagine, all right, so, so he, he's doing his thing, all right, so the problem is that all those other nations worshiped other gods, and so these young ladies, as they came in, instead of Solomon influencing their life, they began to influence his. And so he actually began to build altars all around Israel to all these other gods. Unbelievable. Like, and I mean some seriously bad kinds of gods, all right? Uh, it, it's, I'm not going to get into that right now. But, but so 
So that's even, that's literally the first king who built the temple 300 years ago. Okay, so now 300 years goes by. There's some good kings, there's some bad kings. Uh, some of the bad ones add more altars, you know, add more worship of different gods. A few good kings come along, they tear down a few of them. Next king comes, he's bad, they build some more. So it just goes back and forth, back and forth. But ultimately, it's going down, down, down. In other words, as more time goes by, less and less is true worship of the one true God. And so, Josiah comes along. King Josiah, he's eight years old. But when he was 18 years later, so he's 26 years old, he decides, look it, the temple needs some repairs. I want to fix it up. And so he gathers some money together, and so he sends the priest in there and a scribe, a couple people look around to assess what damage there is and, and get the money together to do it. And here's, here's the deal. Think about this. The priest discovers the book of the law in the temple, in some dusty old corner somewhere. That, now, think about this. Literally, they had lost the Bible. They lost it. They had lost the entire, you know, the Old Testament, the five books of the law at least, plus probably a few other documents with some of the prophets. It was literally out of sight, out of mind, that even the priest didn't even know where it was until they discovered it. And they bring it to the king. That's what we just read. And they read it. And the king does what? tears his clothes. That's a little bizarre for you and I. What does that mean? That's a sign of repentance. It's a sign of, oh, I'm undone. Literally, I'm undone. I, I have sinned. Literally. Through the reading. So let's read on and see what happens as a result of that. So we've got to jump to the next chapter. So we're going to Kings 23, verse 1. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, and all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, or the book of the law, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commandments, statutes, decrees with all his heart, and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant, and the king ordered Hilkah the high priest and the priest next in rank and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kildron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense on all the high places of the towns of Judah and on all those around Jerusalem. Those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon, to the constellations and to all the starry hosts. He took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. You remember I mentioned to you earlier that the earlier kings had set up idols all over. They had even gone as far as to put idols in the temple. And Baal, he was like the worst of all. He was like the god of gods. In other words, he was over all the, all the other gods. He was a god of nature. He was a god of, of, of uh, controlling things. And then Asherah, the pole, that represented the god of fertility. And so that meant for good crops to grow. It also had to do with childbearing and all these kinds of things. So they would offer up sacrifices in the temple to false gods. Now, let me tell you, folks, that's pretty scary. 
And Josiah knew it. When he heard the law, he heard the words of God that said, look it, there's one God and one only. Worship him alone. When the Ten Commandments were read, you know, Moses' Ten Commandments, he realized, man, we have broken every single one of those. And so what did he do? See, it's not just to be hearers of the word that's good enough, right? We got to be what? Doers of the word. And so what did he do? He said, look it, now I know the truth. Now I need to do some house cleaning. And he began first, you know, in the temple to clean it and purge it. And then out beyond, because he was the king, he had control beyond that as well. And began to purge the whole countryside of idol worship. And there was a great revival that happened as a result of it. We're not going to read on. But, but literally the country prospered for a season of time as a result of repentance and obedience to the word. So what does this mean to you and I? You know, we're reading this old story from thousands of years ago, you know, three, four thousand, three thousand-ish years ago. And we're like, how does this work for you and I? Let me tell you something. The Bible says this in the New Testament that we are, in fact, it says this, 1 Corinthians, I think, 3.16, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we just read about a physical building that was the temple, which represented the presence of God at that time. But that's Old Testament, Old Covenant. As New Testament believers, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the question I have for each and every one of us is, what are we doing with the Word of God? Are we allowing it to be a part of our lives, or is it in some dusty corner somewhere? It's in our lives. We, you know, we, we have read it at times. We've allowed it to be part of our life. Or, or, or is it all now just reduced to little sound bites we see on Facebook? A cutesy little scripture verse and a, and a little comment. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong, all right? But if that's your limit of allowing God's word to go in your life, then you're going to starve to death. Because that's not enough to eat on, to feed on, to know what the whole truth of God's word is. Because the king, he had prophets around, he had priests. They all had little snippets of what God's word, what had been passed down through generations and generations. You know, they had their old, you know, Facebook page where they might put a little uh, thing up on a wall somewhere, a little quota here and there. But it wasn't the entire word of God. They literally had lost it. And that's why I'm so passionate about reading through the Bible. We're going to do it chronologically. You're all invited to be part of it if you want. But the question is, are you desiring to have revival in your heart? Because that's one of the first keys to experiencing revival, is a renewal of God's word in your life. A renewal of what real, absolute truth is. I'm just being real with you this morning. Listen, there's no shortcuts to revival. I've been, I've been in Christian life, Christian society for the better part of 35 years. And I've heard everybody and their uncle, God, I want revival. But then when you really ask them, do you want revival? They're like, no, not really. They just want the ooey-gooey feeling. They just, they, just, they just want to feel something. But when it really comes down to house cleaning, what we just read about, well, like, whoa, whoa, no, 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 I, I, I want to keep that one idol. And you might say, well, hold it, we don't have any bales or ashes. Yes, we do. Anything in your life that's more important time-wise or in any other way, financial-wise, than the worship of God is an idol. <laughs> so we got more idols today than we've ever had. Come on now, let's just be honest about it. We got more idols than they had back in that day. Because we got more money, more time. You know, we don't have to go down by, by a river now to wash our clothes and take hours to do that, right? We just push the button on the wash machine and then we could be doing something else. And so the point is, we've got more time than ever to fall away from our Lord. And so what do we all need? I know... I, no, I shouldn't say, because some of you are maybe okay. I know what I need. I need revival. 
I need a revival on a daily basis because I live in an idol-filled world. And I don't know about you, but you probably live in the same world I do, and the idols, they're everywhere. The question is, how close are they to your house, so to speak? How close are they to your temple? Are they on the inside, or are they kind of out there beyond your control? And that's really the question I'm asking each and every one of us, including myself, today. And so, what are some of the components of a revival? Now, this, in a sense, is, is two parts on a personal level, as well as a revival that you might see or hear about on the news. We're hearing about some revival things happening. And, and so, what, what are some things that we can look for? So, let me just give a couple of them to you. First of all, it's usually preceded by spiritual decline and despair. Do you think we all fit into that right about now as far as the world goes? I, I would say so, right? You know, talk about spiritual decline here in this nation and around the world. You know, there definitely is some issues. A few, right? Okay, so, so I would say that that's an ingredient that we can say, hey, that seems to be here. All right, what about the next thing, though? When revival begins to happen, you know, I just said that's the environment in a sense. Now, what needs to happen? The Word of God, the absolute truth is sought out and proclaimed. Every revival worth its salt begins with a foundation of the truth, the Word of God. Amen? You know, I asked this, and I've asked it over the years, that if for some reason Bibles were banned, or you were put in a place where there are no access to any Bibles, no apps with Bibles on it, how much of the Bible is inside of you? Because that's the only part that really counts. You know, it's great. I, you know, I've probably got 35, 40 versions of the Bible I have access to at any time just with a, with a push of a button or grabbing it off a shelf. But how much of it is in here? Because that's all that really counts. Because that is just a seed. That's just a seed. The seed has to go into a human heart to grow and multiply. And so that's the only place the Word of God can make a difference is on the inside. You want true revival, begin to devour God's Word. And at times, it's going to appear, you know, we're going to be reading through, and we're going to get to places like in Deuteronomy as we're reading. It's like, shoot me already. You know what I'm saying? Because it's just, it's boring. All right? There are parts of it that's boring. It's historical. It's like, what's this got to do with me? But listen to me. For John. Because every once in a while, there's little nuggets. And sometimes it's in the middle of us, kind of like this dry commentary. And all of a sudden, there's like, and God did this. Or God said this. Or this happened. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit says, this is about you. And like, oh, I never saw that before. And that's happened to me. The last time we read through the Word, about 40 of you joined me in doing that this last year. And I had so many of those. And I've read through the Bible dozens of times. And yet I still have those onion moments, right, where, where it's been peeled back another level. It's like, oh, that's amazing. But the thing is, sometimes you've got to go through the dry to get to the good. It's just, it's just the way it is. And something that was dry to you a year ago or 10 years ago is all of a sudden life to you. And so you just got to dig in. You got to make a decision and have a desire for that, realizing that it's God's word and you need to eat it like if you don't eat it, you're going to die. That's how you have to kind of like food itself. Amen? Okay, let's move on. Idol worship or sin is recognized and destroyed. In other words, that is a huge part of revival. It's not just do we gooey feelings, but, but it, it has an impact on you to realize something is wrong. I got to deal with this. I got to deal with that. And it's not finger pointing. True revival isn't about, oh, now I have arrived and, oh, you are a mess. Oh, you're really a mess. True revival actually has a spirit of grace with it. 
that literally you become less critical and less judgmental. That's real revival. But actually, you're more look, introverted looking at yourself saying, I need to make this change. And it's not you saying, I have to do it. But rather, there's this conviction on the inside that it's like, oh, Lord, I've hurt you by doing this. You know, I'm worshiping this instead of you. I'm so sorry. In other words, it's not this thing where you feel forced to do it, but you want to do it because there's a revival of your relationship with the Lord. Amen. Okay. I love this next one. Miracles, signs and wonders, salvations and deliverances are experienced. Like that is like the heart of every revival where stuff starts to happen. And again, depending, every revival has a uniqueness, just like every personal revival has a uniqueness. But there's a part of these things that are part of it. Just miracles happen, signs and wonders in different ways for each and every one of us. Salvations happen. In other words, you just start, you share what God is doing in your life because that's what revival does. Revival can't stay on the inside. Real revival, you want to tell others about the goodness of God. And all of a sudden, your neighbor that you've talked to like a zillion times about Jesus and they told you to go sound pound salt and you come up and say, you know, Jesus loves you and they start crying. And you're like, I didn't even get to the good part yet. You know what I'm saying? And it's why? Because it wasn't you anymore. It was you just carrying the presence of God and just making him known to them. And they say, what must I do to be saved? I've had that happen. And it bugged me. It used to bug me. Now, let me tell you why. Because I wanted to be the smart guy. I wanted to be the guy to give the four points of the gospel, you know, of the Roman road to salvation. I wanted to, you know, unique, you know, just give it all special to him and, and have us all oh, those words were just so good out of your mouth. That's, you know, that's the flesh, okay, just so you know. And it never worked that way. What I found was that if I just had an experience with Jesus, I, I had my own personal revival, I would just go near people. And sometimes they just start crying. I'm like, are, are you okay? And they're like, I don't know, my life's a mess. And you're like, well, you know, Jesus can help you. Really? How do I get saved? You know, literally, that's the Spirit of God, that's revival. And it doesn't mean that you don't get ready. We should know the Scriptures. We should know how to be saved so we can lead that person through prayer. But the thing is, when the Spirit of the Lord is part of it through revival, it's not hard work anymore. It just happens. It's, it's miraculous. It's a true sign and wonder. And then as we go on, this is actually more kind of a little bit down the road after or during the end of revival. Joy peace, and, and an expansion of the kingdom of God. Let me tell you something. At the end or through revival, what happens is there's greater commitments to people committing to be missionaries, uh, people committing of finances and time to serve the Lord. The list goes on and on. But if you look all through history, both here in America and around the world, when there was a revival that happened, it affected the entire world for hundreds of years. There are people now that were part of revivals 60, 70, 80, 100, 200 years ago that their commitment to the Lord then is still impacting the world today. It's amazing. You have no idea what revival can do, both on, on a big level and a little level. Okay, so now, what do we do with this? I've given you, I've kind of like done this shotgun approach, you know, boom, here, here you go. You're like, ah, oh, okay, okay. So how do I respond to revival? Because here's the thing. I believe that Jesus is knocking on the door of our lives right here and right now. I really do believe that. How do we respond? Well, let me tell you this. There are three camps of people, three groups of people that when confronted with revival do three different things. All right. 
So let me tell you what the first one is. You don't want to be the first two, all right? I'm hoping you're going to be the third group, but let's look at the two first groups first. So the first group are what I call the escapers, and they're going to pop that up, all right? Psalms 139.7 says this, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? And so literally, the escaper is when revival comes, when God comes kind of knocking on the door, and there's a sense that something's happening. They get divided again into two subgroups. And one of those groups is they don't understand what's going on, and they're just freaked out. And as a result of that, they, they push back because they just, they can't compute. They just, ah, I, I can't deal with this. And literally, they try to run from the presence of God. They reject what God is proposing for them. Then there's another group of escapers. They're very well aware. They have a full understanding of what God is doing. Yet they have chosen to say, no, I don't want to change. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. And so therefore, they reject God as well, and they escape, in a sense, from Him. But just as I have that scripture, can you really escape from God? There's nowhere where you can go. David himself said, look, if I descend into hell, he says, you were there, <laughs> you know, wherever. But the point is, you can turn your face away from the Lord. You can't escape His presence. You can't get away from Him. But you can turn away from what He wants to do in your life. And you have to make a decision, am I going to be an escaper, or am I just going to stay and let God do what He wants to do. All right, so that's the first group. Don't be that group, all right? Don't be any one of those, all right? I have participated in that group. Anyone here been in that group? Oh, thank you for your honesty. I've been in that group. There's been times in my life where I've been confronted with the Lord, it was something, and I'm like, nah, no, <laughs> and run the other way. So let's talk about the next group. I call this group the excusers. There's three E's. I, kind of, I went with the E thing, all right? So you've got the excusers. So Here's a scripture from Acts 11, verse 17. So if God gave Gentiles the same gift equally as he gave us after we accepted and believed and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, who was I to interfere or stand in God's way? This is in uh, connection with Peter in Acts 10, where God asked him to go to Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and share Jesus, all right? And so he, he does it. They all get saved. The amazing thing happens. So now he's standing in Jerusalem before the elders, and they're like, what are you doing? You know, you're not supposed to do that. They said, look, who am I to stand in the way? You know, they, they got saved. They spoke in tongues. You know, they accepted Jesus the same as everyone else. Who am I to get in the way of God? Now, here's an observation that I've seen with every kind of revival, whether on a personal level or on a larger level, like what's going on in Asbury and in other places, is that the ones who are the excusers are actually the people within the body of Christ. It's not unbelievers. In other words, unbelievers aren't coming up with excuses and saying, that's not God. In fact, most unbelievers, when they see things like this happening, in fact, you can even read reports, newspaper reports, and that they're usually very open-minded about it. They're like, hey, we really don't understand what's going on there, but, you know, there's students that stay up, you know, all night for days praying. You know, we don't get that, but it must be something happening. And, and that's literally how they're reporting that kind of thing. And yet... When you go on and look at some ministries and individuals, what are they doing? They're throwing rocks at them. They're saying stuff like, well, this can't be God because there are people who are LGBT people that are there. There are people from cults that are there. They're this, that. And you know, as I read all that, I'm like, you know what? Dude, you're trying to convince me this isn't God. You're actually convincing me it is God. Why? 
Because God doesn't show any preference. Just like, just like what, what Peter said, who am I to get in the way of God? In other words, God holds revival out for the entire world. That's what he came. Jesus is the embodiment of revival. You know, think about this. He goes to Zacchaeus' house, right? A tax collector, chief of sinners, right? He's there. And what were the excusers that day? What did they say? How can you do that? How can you go to Zacchaeus? How can you be where there's sinners and, and tax collectors? So it hasn't changed. Isn't it sad that it's within the church community? And when I say that, not the church, but the church worldwide, that the naysayers, the excusers, are from within the body of Christ. Church, we've got to stop throwing rocks. And we need to be careful that we're not throwing rocks on a local level as well. Person comes in seeking God and you know they're wearing their pride pin or, or they're, they're living an alternative lifestyle in some other way or, or whatever, how they look, whatever. And, and in the old days, rocks would get thrown. That's not the spirit of God. Revival means, here, come on in. We pray you experience Jesus here today. Amen. In fact, if you look even across this body right here, right now, if we went back 30 years, when I first came here, it was suits and ties. Ladies, you wore dresses. If you wore a pantsuit, you got the evil eye. I'm just telling you, by somebody. I'm just saying, that was the way it was. And so I purposely, you know, as I, as I was here longer, and even Pastor Vic became more like this as time went on, we became a lot less, you know, formal about it. Why? Because whosoever. Because the minute you start looking like you have to look a certain way and act a certain way, then a person coming through the door says, oh, for me to be a Christian, that's how I have to look. That's how I have to act. That's not revival. That's conformism. That has nothing to do with Jesus at all. In fact, it has everything to do with religion. And so I made a point to be even a little extreme. You know, I had these light-colored jeans were all faded. I wore them for a couple of years. Why? I wanted to, like, disc the system. Like, just, just, just like, be a, you know, so people are like, whoa, you know what? I did that on purpose because I just wanted to just shake the whole thing and say, look, we shouldn't care how people dress, how they look, where they, even how they smell. It doesn't matter. If they're seekers of Jesus, then there's potential for revival to happen. And are we willing to let that happen in our lives today? You know, the, you know what's happened at Asbury and other places, I'm thrilled about it. But you don't have to run there to experience revival. You can do it right here and right now. I believe that. Now, if God's calling you to go there, have at it. I'm not telling you don't. But I'm just saying, real revival begins right in here, right here, and right now. And that leads me to the third group, which I pray we're all a part of. I call them the embracers, all right? So we got the, 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 we got the escapers, the excusers. Now we got the embracers. Paul says this, It's not that I've already reached the goal or I've already become perfect, but I keep pursuing it, hoping somehow to embrace it just as I have been embraced by the Messiah, Jesus. See, this is really what it's about here, isn't it? Real revival is reaching out and grabbing hold of Jesus and then feeling Him grabbing hold of you. You know, one version says, grab hold of that for which Christ has grabbed hold of you for. And I love the Apostle Paul. The context is, he says, I'm not perfect. He says, I, I got issues. I still got some idols in my life. I still got some stuff going on. But you know what? I'm going to grab hold of Jesus and I'm not going to let go. And I'm going to let him grab hold of me. And because of that, those idols will become less and less in my life. So I'm not asking you to do this mental thing. Okay, I've got to get rid of this. I've got to get rid of that to have revival. No, no, no. You have revival first. You see, a changed heart then becomes a changed life. 
Embrace Jesus. Stop being so critical of everybody around you, and especially of yourself, and begin to just reach out to him and say, Jesus, I am here. There's a scripture so fond to me, it's probably my most favorite verse in the Bible. In the book of Revelations, in chapter 2 and 3, there are letters to the churches of that day, seven churches. And I believe those letters speak to our churches as well, and speak to us personally. But at the very end of it, in Revelations 3, 20, Jesus says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice, I will come into him, and I will dine with him and he with me. And so, I believe that Jesus is knocking on the door of some hearts right now. It's not a physical door. It's not what he was talking about. He was talking about your heart. He's knocking on your heart. And I believe he does it daily. I believe he's doing it all the time. The question is, are we hearing? And then the next step is, are we answering? Josiah did that. David understood that. He understood that the presence of God was more important than any other thing. Are we coming to that place of beginning to realize that? And then through that, our lives will be changed. But don't focus on that. Focus on Him and His presence. Let revival change you on the inside. And then, and then listen, if you need to have a book burning, <laughs> if you need to throw out some stuff in your house, if you need to get rid of some, some uh, links on your computer, if you need to, whatever, God will show you that. I'm not here to tell you what you got to do, what can stay, what can go. I'm here to tell you that Jesus wants to come in and, and wants to be a part of your life, to fellowship with you. That, that word dine doesn't mean a physical meal. He just wants to hang with you and have a conversation. Now, isn't that the best thing when you eat? You know, I've eaten alone. It's no fun. It's kind of boring, actually. But when you eat with someone, you're having a conversation, there's fellowship there. And that's what Jesus wants to do. So, if you want revival in your life, just stand with me right now. Thank you, Lord. Lord, you see all these standing here. And I'm not sure that all of us, including myself, fully know what we're signing up for because revival is messy. It, it turns our ordered lives a little topsy-turvy because you want to do some things that are different from what we're doing right now. But Lord, in the times of revival that I've experienced over the years with you, one thing I do know, it's always for good. In the end, it's always better than whatever we had before. So Lord, right now, we just open not only our lives to you, we just open our hearts to you, our minds to you, and I pray that you would revive us all once more. <laughs> and then, Lord God, it won't be like this once this morning and, and then not again for 10 years, but Lord, tomorrow morning when we wake up and we invite you to be a part of our day, that there's another revival. <laughs> and at night or during the day when we just take that moment to talk to you, that there's a little revival that happens right there. That, Lord God, that literally we live in revival on a daily basis. So Lord, we choose right now to make room, to make room for you to speak to us through your word and through your Holy Spirit because that's the foundation of every revival because true revival can only be upon your absolute truth. Not what the world says is truth, but what you say is truth. So Father, right now, revive us once again by your Spirit and I pray, Lord, that each person here that you've spoken to, 
in some way, shape, or form, and that they take what you've said to them, and it's like a good seed planted in good soil that it will grow and multiply and bring honor and glory to your name. I thank you in advance for what you're going to do through this. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you this morning.